0: Frequency like no other. 101.9 Chai FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish current affairs and culture show. And if you were reading the Jewish report a couple of weeks ago, you would have seen an article on Mr. Harry Schwartz, uh, a name which might be familiar to a a lot of us in the community, for his work in in politics and humanitarian uh, relief, as well as his commitment to the Jewish community. And it was such an interesting article that I thought we would get onto the line one of his uh, grandchildren who who now lives in the UK Adam Schwartz and just talk a little bit about his life of what was a remarkable man Adam welcome to the show thanks for being with us on the new blue review
1: not at all thank you very much for the invite I'm a huge fan of the show I uh, regularly tune in from, from London so you know others who also tune in uh, from abroad so you certainly have quite a Quite a wide uh, sort of group of listeners. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me. It's great to be on. It's
0: good. It's good to know we have an international uh, listenership. Uh, Adam, Absolutely. for for a start, uh, maybe give us a sense about your 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 grandfather. A lot of people have said that his commitment to justice and uh, you know supporting the underdog came from his time uh, in, in Germany. So, tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty. Brilliant... I'm telling the story of people's lives, obviously. The beginning seems like an obvious place to start, but I think it's particularly true with him because his sort of experience in Germany um, sort of had such a defining moment on on sort of defining impact on who he was and really what he stood for. So he was born in 1924 in Cologne in the uh, Weimar Republic in, in Germany, um, and so obviously it was a you know a sort of you know very difficult time to be growing up as a as, as a sort of Jewish family. Um, he was born into a sort of not particularly religious family but sort of tradition, uh, traditional Ashkenazi family um, and he had sort of strong memories of uh, you know uh, you know basically experiencing uh, the rise of Nazism uh, under Hitler and you know what, what really that brought about um, particularly he had you know strong memories of leaving school because he was Jewish he also had strong memories of uh, you know, having to basically be kicked off public transport because he was Jewish. Um, so, you know, those kind of memories of of discrimination from simply who he was really had such an important impact on on who he was. Um, but it also, uh, you know, his sort of experience coming to South Africa uh, also had a very important impact on on sort of what he stood for. So he came to South Africa in 1934 uh, with his family. His father had come the year before had to leave Germany the, the night Hitler came to power because he was a social democratic party activist and so had to leave uh, uh, faster than the rest of the family um, but he, he sort of also had, had, had memories of being taunted uh, at school even t- in South Africa for being different he didn't speak any English or Afrikaans at first um, so he was really treated as an, as an outsider um, so that really had such an important part on, uh, on, on sort of who he was in later life um, I think also he had sort of Sort of Afrikaner nationalism. Um, in 1937, the South African government uh, tried to sort of appease uh, nationalist elements within, within the country by basically introducing legislation to halt all uh, Jewish immigration from Europe. Uh, and there was one final vote that was called the Stuttgart uh, that uh, left uh, Europe in 1936 uh, that carried uh, German refugees to South Africa that carried his grandparents. Um, and say it was the last last ship to be allowed into South Africa before the legislation came into force. Um, so while he was waiting in Cape Town for his family, there was also a huge uh, anti-Jewish demonstration led by Dr. Henrik Verwoerd, who you'll know well, he was later the architect of apartheid. He was basically saying, Jews go home. And he never really forgot that, that sort of welcome that he gave to his family Um, So it's very early experiences um, of both discrimination from himself, uh, but also sort of from from sort of right wing Afrikaner nationalism um, that really led him to uh, you know to be the person he was in later life.
0: It's it's very interesting actually. I have family that was also on the Stuttgart, and uh, for a lot of German refugees, it was uh, certainly an important uh, part uh, of of their journey to South Africa and a marked to point at which uh, things really began to change for the jews here in the 30s uh, so that that is interesting and uh, you can see how it would have affected his ideas about uh, about getting involved with the political struggle here one of the ones i want to focus on uh, is something called the torch commando which he was uh, an important part of creating he 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 was part of the war effort in World War Two, and when he came back, he joined this thing called the Torch Commando. Can can you talk to us about what that was uh, and why it was so important? So sure. yeah, again, it's, it's a brilliant question. So um,
1: as you know, uh, the, the the Torch Commando sort of grew out of a, out of a movement called the Springbok Legion. Um, basically, it was a group of um, uh, wartime servicemen who uh, decided after the war was over and after the National Party came to power, that actually, uh, you know, it was important as people who had fought for their country and fought against nationalism in Europe to actually fight it in South Africa when it grew as well. I think to my grandfather and a lot of other uh, servicemen who who fought in the Second World War, it was a real profound shock uh, three years later after the war ended in 1948 for the people who'd really been supporting... Uh, Nazi Germany during the war to actually come to power in South Africa. World War II was obviously about, you know, ending uh, far-right nationalism and fascism. And, and in his mind, and others' uh, mind, you know, it was a real, real shock to have um, uh, those people sort of come to power. So uh, him and a few others, um, uh, including Sailor Malan. Who was sort of a wartime hero um, for uh, being sort of an exceptional fighter pilots decided that uh, it was important to, to resist. So they formed this organisation called the Torch Commando, which was essentially uh, a group of uh, starters, as you say, ex-servicemen egg- who decided to uh, sort of have peaceful protests uh, where they would carry these torches around and sort of embarked upon civil action to protest. Initially, the removal of uh, coloured voters, uh, from the, uh, from the voters' call. Uh, but it actually became a very, very prominent organisation. At its height, it had a quarter of a million members. But considering the population of white South Africans, uh, in 1951, when it, when it began, uh, was actually a very, very significant movement. Um, so that's really when his kind of political involvement began. Um, I think that's sort of when he began to sort of be, be involved in this kind of mass uh, organisation, mass organisation uh, or mass mass resistance to apartheid
0: And he then decided to jump in with both feet, didn't he? Because uh, having done the torch commander, he then got involved with one of the most uh, high profile cases legal cases in South Africa history because he was involved with, with the treason trial uh,
1: So he wasn't involved in the treason trial he was
0: actually involved in the Rivonia ah, trial. trial Yes, I apologise
1: Sure. Um, So, yeah, obviously, fascinating case to be involved in. So, the way that he he got involved, Harold Wolpe, one of the accused, uh, was arrested, uh, but he escaped from prison. And Harold Wolpe was married to the sister of someone called Jimmy Cantor. Jimmy Cantor was a a lawyer in in South Africa. Um, He sort of disagreed with apartheid uh, in principle, but he wasn't politically active. Um, But he was friends with my grandfather. When Harold Wolpe escaped from prison, he uh, was uh, very badly treated. And Jimmy then uh, came to my grandfather and said, you know, what should we do? Um, my, uh, my sister's being uh, very badly treated. My grandfather said he would raise it with the Minister of Police um but that you know it, it wouldn't be wise to go to the to the press because actually that would sort of antagonize the police who were already quite humiliated from the whole process of uh of people escaping uh from the uh from the trial um so jimmy actually decided to go to the press um and raise the fact that his sister was being badly beaten in, uh, beaten in tri- in prison um or, uh, when she was detained uh unfortunately then jimmy was then arrested uh, and then my grandfather acted as, as his defense uh, Jimmy was later found to be one of only two um, in the trial to be acquitted uh, but unfortunately because of the bad treatment that he received as well um, his uh, he, he was sort of uh, very badly affected by it both sort of psychog- psychologically professionally um, his sort of professional reputation was ruined having being associated uh, with the trial, even though he, he really had nothing to do with uh, with any of the activities of, of the other uh, other people accused.
0: Well, of course, what was so interesting about that trial was it included uh, all of these different people, like Nelson Mandela um, and uh, Walter Sisulu, and a, a, a range of other anti-apartheid activists, uh, Dennis Goldberg, Arthur Goldreich. Uh, and you can actually go and see it at a great museum uh, today. Uh, and it was all of those greats of of the ANC back then. Uh, so it was that was such a such an important trial. Uh, and and the Cantor story is interesting because he, as you say, he wasn't directly part of. Uh, part of the operations But kind of got uh, involved Because he was a relation So yeah, f- fascinating to see wh- Where he was connected I want to jump uh, forward a little bit Because you know, a lot of people would know The the political party The democratic alliance But I don't know if everybody knows Where it sort of comes from You had the democratic party For a long time The DP uh, But before that uh, Your grandfather was involved In, in sort of realigning, realigning The opposition so that it could be uh, basically become what we would now call the DA.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, He was sort of right at the centre of uh, of of the realignment of opposition politics. So he first became uh, sort of involved in opposition politics in 1951 when he was elected as a Johannesburg city councillor for the United Party. He then uh, became uh, a member of the Transvaal Provincial Council in 1958, uh, when he became leader of the opposition a few years later, um, and then he became uh, a leader of the United Party in the Transvaal uh, in 1973, but sort of at that time there was a huge internal battle going on inside the United Party between sort of the decided by uh, de Villiers-Graff, who was the party leader, who sort of tacitly supported most of uh, the apartheid legislation um, weren't really providing the kind of robust um, opposition to apartheid that my grandfather and, and other sort of liberals in the party um, wanted. So there was this huge conflict going on between uh, uh, my grandfather's wing, uh, which is sort of the liberal wing, referred to as the Young Turks, and the party's old guard. So my grandfather, um, uh, various events happened and essentially my grandfather uh uh was expelled from the united party uh, in february nineteen seventy five and uh along with a few other m p s and uh many other uh provincial councillors and and local councillors he was mainly uh expelled because he signed uh this key declaration with chief butelesi in january nineteen seventy four um and uh so he he knew chief butelezzi well he was sort of the main acknowledged black leader at the time. They signed a uh, an accord called the Mashramatiini Declaration. And what the declaration uh, sort of uh, signed up to or prescribed for South Africa um, was that apartheid should be ended. Uh, you know, the the sort of post-apartheid South Africa should provide a stake in society for everyone in South Africa, not just white South Africans. Um, but that crucially also apartheid should be ended through peaceful dialogue and negotiations. Um, and even though those principles were ultimately uh, signed up to by de Klerk and Mandela and others in the nineteen nineties, actually in the seventies that was quite a novel and sort of pioneering idea. Um, so uh, that that really uh, uh, upset the old guard in the United Party, and that led to him and others being. So uh, they formed this. They formed this new party called the Reform Party, which my grandfather was leader of. And then six months later, in July 1975, they merged with the Progressive Party, uh, which I'm sure you'll know well, uh, was the party of Helen Sussman and Colin Eglin and others. Um, And that merger really proved to realign opposition politics in South Africa. Uh, The party eventually became the Progressive Federal Party um, and uh, became the official opposition in the 1977 election. Which was, uh, you know, a huge deal—the fact that the United Party, the the party of of Smuts and others, uh, had now basically been eradicated, um, uh, uh, mostly from Parliament, and that this new Liberal Party was now uh, was now the official opposition, which of course allowed uh, my grandfather and Helen Sisman and others uh, to to be in much sort of stronger position within Parliament to be able to advocate uh, uh, sort of anti-apartheid policies, but also expose the National Party on key, key, key areas
0: to do with financial policy and sort of general management of, of the country. Now, away from politics for, for a moment, he was also an important part uh, of uh, the Jewish community and, and worked on behalf of the Jewish community. Uh, what kind of involvement did, did he have there? So, uh, he joined the Board of
1: Deputies uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and eventually became the chairman, uh, I believe in the 1980s of their International Affairs Committee. That was quite, a, uh, quite an important sort of portfolio at the time, just because obviously South Africa faced a lot of isolation internationally. And so he, he sort of played quite an important part in making sure that actually Jews in South Africa weren't, weren't isolated and sort of links were maintained for, you know, to Israel and other Jewish communities. Um, it was sometimes sort of a source of tension actually within the Jewish community. His own uh, anti-apartheid record. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, viewed him unfortunately as a bit of a nuisance because they thought actually, uh, you know, the National Party aren't uh, officially sort of opposed to Jews. They didn't have any legislation that discriminated against Jews in the same way as they did uh, with other racial groups. So They thought actually. Uh, you know, we should generally kind of keep our noses down um, and, uh, you know, partly due to fear, I'm sure, um, actually Jews shouldn't be involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, but my grandfather, you know, basically argued on the board of deputies for a long time that the board should be taking more of an active stance in condemning apartheid. Um, and for a long time, the, the, the board's policy was to basically be the apolitical and wouldn't really get involved in these kinds of issues. But eventually, I believe it was 1984 or 1985 that the, the board finally condemned apartheid, um, uh, which is something which he, he he certainly was was a, was a, was a part of, um, sort of advocate, advocating that.
0: Yeah, So we're coming up just to almost to the end of the interview time, a lot of to us. Uh, but very quickly, he, he was also famous as having been uh, the ambassador to the United States, one of the few, few Jews to get such a high up-level in government in South Africa up to that point. Uh, what kind of stuff did he do there? So the main uh, reason
1: why de Klerk appointed him was because, obviously, there was a lot of suspicion internationally about whether the National Party were actually going to end apartheid and sort of move towards all race elections. So they decided to appoint um, uh, him to, uh, to be ambassador to the United States, mainly basically to convince uh, the, the United States and the world that they were actually going to um, to end apartheid. I think they, they, they thought actually if you had someone who had a record um, of you know 30, 40 years behind him but opposing apartheid saying that apartheid is going to end, that would add a lot of legitimacy to the government. So he was mainly involved in that, but crucially he was involved in uh, trying to remove all the economic sanctions that were really crippling the South African economy by the 1990s. Uh, one of the issues that he had with that was that, uh, obviously so you may know, uh, America's sort of federal system means that every one of the 50 states has its own system of laws and sanctions. So he had to go to basically all 50 states to, to make sure that um, those sanctions were removed at a state level. We also engaged a lot uh, at the sort of national level to remove those as well. Um, And then, of course, as he moved towards 1994, he prepared uh, uh, sort of elections to be held for South Africans uh, to vote in in America. Um, And then after the election, uh, he hosted President Mandela in October 1994 um, and uh, uh, sort of had had a a, a sort of um, important trip when Mandela was arriving increase investment and, and support for the country after after the new elections, so those are the main things he'd really
0: been been working on and and uh, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of other stories uh, uh, that that you could tell about but as i've we, we have about two minutes left do you, do you have one in particular that uh, perhaps speaks to you something personal something that he told you uh, you know something uh, that that people would find interesting?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, the main memory that sticks out was uh, about sort of 10 years ago, I'd been attacked in the streets, um, sort of randomly, and, you know, as a sort of supportive grandfather, he called me up um, and asked if I was okay, but then he said to me, uh, you know, something that was quite unexpected, I didn't quite understand at the time, uh, he said to me, get everything out of this that you possibly can, um, and actually only came to me later that actually this was very much the way that he, he lived his life. You know, what what could have been a sort of star, uh, a sad story of a kind of penniless refugee, um, as it is for many, he kind of turned into one of success, and he kind of turned his disadvantages he had maybe from early on into into advantages. Um, the other thing that I would add is uh, the very important role that my my grandmother Annette had on my grandfather's political life. She ran all of his uh, his election campaigns, which were all of successful. Um, she was a trade, trade unionist by background. So she had a very good eye for elections and, and understanding politics, um, and she was obviously a, a very brave anti-apartheid com- campaigner in, in her own right, um, and she she, she really uh, sort of laid a lot of the foundations for him in that respect, so that's something I would definitely uh, say was very important as well.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Adam, unfortunately, all the time we've got for today. But I think if people want to read more about uh, Harry Schwartz's life, you can check it out. There, there was the uh, article in the Jewish Report and on essay history. And, and Wikipedia actually has also uh, a very comprehensive page. So if people want to find out more information about it, a hero, really, in the Jewish community, uh, they can do it there. Uh, so thank you so much for your time and joining us on the New Blue Review. Thank you so much. It's
1: been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the
0: invite. Uh, Adam Schwartz there in a very, very cold uh, London joining us to talk about the life of Harry Schwartz. From Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. So that's right, if you want to uh, get in on the trolley dash, make sure that you do sign your, your slip at pick and pay. Trolley dash is always a lot of fun. My question is are you allowed to place yourself right by the meat aisle uh, and sort of pick up all the meat that you need for for the Pesach period we will uh, have to see uh, all about that and uh, it's uh, very very uh, interesting uh, what they are doing there and uh, we will we will obviously be following um, what's going on with uh, with with Pesach uh, in in uh, in in this show actually we have a little bit uh, going on and By the way, if you are keen on on Pesach this year, but you're not going to make the trolley dash, uh, it is also worth considering uh, other options. Uh, So if you're not sure where you're going to be spending uh, Pesach this uh, year, then perhaps you should have thought of going away for Pesach uh, and uh, going to the Taba Eco Lodge. It's just 20 minutes from Johannesburg, and you can come for a day uh, and stay the night or come for the whole of Pesach. It's all up to you. Uh, There are great daily activities, international rabbinic speakers, Nightly entertainment uh, and, and the food is of the highest Chabad supervision uh, And of course the accommodation Is out of the world. this world So for more v- details Visit the website orafrica.godaddycites.com uh, 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 That's or sites.com Or SMS Pesach to 34519 uh, And they will contact you That's Pesach to 34519 uh, Something alternative That you can do uh, on your uh, on your Pesach this year. And I hope you did enjoy that discussion with Adam Schwartz. Uh, very, very interesting to get into a bit of the history of the Jewish community, maybe find out things about people we didn't know about. And I'd love to know, who are your Jewish heroes in the community? Is there someone uh, who does something heroic, either in the past or... Uh, in in, in in current day uh, that you think uh, really does an amazing job we'd, lo- we'd love to hear from you uh, I'm, I'm all about figuring out who are the people in our community who are doing great things so you can SMS us uh, 34519 you can WhatsApp us 0618951019 0618951019 uh, send us a tweet at HIFM or in email on air at highfm.com and we'll very happily uh, take your uh, take your 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 nominations for 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 people in the community who are heroes who are doing good things i'd love to hear from you uh, and get your perspective now moving on a little bit into other things uh, i don't know if you've been watching some of the press uh, certainly if you've been listening to some of the other shows on the station you may have picked up the story but it is something which I think is going to become bigger uh, certainly as we run up into the next sort of week or so and you're going to be hearing a lot more about it so we might as well cover it now and and that has to do with the Eurovision Song Contest. Now if you don't know what Eurovision is that's okay uh, because basically it's not something that we really deal with that much in South Africa, but basically it was started just after World War II as a way of trying to unite the continent after obviously the big war there. And Eurovision is all of the different organizations uh, that are affiliated to the Euro TV um, the Euro TV. Uh, Basically broadcasting networks, Anyone, any place where you can get Europe TV, you can be part of the uh, Eurovision Song Contest, which is why, despite the fact it's been called Eurovision, uh, you get countries like Australia participating, uh, and uh, as you'll see in a minute, Israel as well and it's very very interesting because what happens is each country in the Eurovision network submits a song that then gets voted on as being the top song of that Eurovision awards and it's got quite a complicated system you've got to have a jury which votes on the song and they have a popular vote and then that's all added up and getting points and then those points are added up and uh, it goes to a whole pool of points uh, um uh a whole pool of points, rather, and and that then gets put together, um, and and you get the the winning song. So this brings in a lot of interesting aspects of it because the country in in the country itself, you're not allowed to vote for your own song. So if it's Russia, for example, you can't vote for the Russian entry that year, which means that you're relying on other countries in this Euroblock to vote for your country and this leads to some interesting politics because obviously some countries are less interested in voting for other countries just on the basis of their politics not on the basis of the art so you'll for example find the Greeks never vote for the Turks and the Ukrainians don't vote for the Russian songs at the moment uh, and all of the cultural blocks tend to vote together so uh, anything that is swedish or from Iceland or Finnish, they often get the support of of those uh, people uh, the u k and Ireland tend to get uh, uh, some sorts of 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 backing and uh, the politics is at least as interesting as the song itself and you often find that the popular vote is different from. The jury vote. And uh, if you know ABBA, uh, you will know that they this is where they got their start at Eurovision. So why am I even talking about this at all? Well, it's about a week and a bit to go for this Eurovision 2018. And the odds on favorite to win this year is actually an Israeli song. Now, the Israelis have won Eurovision before, once in the 80s and once uh, in, in 1998. Um, and... Uh, Crucially very famous, I think it was 98, where uh, the singer was a dana and she was a a trance woman. So it was a sort of a boundary breaking uh, event both in Israel and in the Eurovision. Uh, But this year is a completely different uh, kettle of fish uh, entirely and it seems to be leading the pack and getting a lot of interest not just in eurovision countries even a lot of arab countries uh, are seem to be picking up on the song the, the song is called toy and uh, it's r- done by a woman her name is netta uh, brazili and it, it's interesting because it mixes uh, uh, English and uh, sort of Hebrew songs as well as uh, some Arabic style. Now, now remember, the thing about Eurovision is it's at least one part visual as much as it is a song. So we, we are going to play it for you in a bit. But you need to actually go and have a look at Toy on the website, uh, on YouTube or on Eurovision, if you are interested, because you miss half of the the interesting aspects about it. And uh, it seems to have both captured the sort of feminist moment that we're going through, the Me Too um, movement. It's got a very sort of feminist sound to it, and it also has a bit of a a crazy uh, style to it. But and a lot of people hate it, uh, and a lot of people love it. It's definitely a highly devised for song. But whatever its merits, it is currently being looked at as the number one favorite. Now, whether it will win or not, it's already hit about uh, 7 million views on YouTube. So it's already getting an enormous amount of prominence, and it will be interesting to see where the song itself goes. So. Let's uh take a short break and then when we come back we're gonna be listening to toy. I'd love to know what you think.
1: Stay relevant and up
0: to date this is 101.9 High Fm. 101.9 High FM. What did you think of that Netta Brazili and toy. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you love it? Do you hate it? And do you think it's going to win? 34519 That's our SMS line. You can also WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 Tweet us at FM or email us on air at FM. And while you're doing that, you should also take note that the Pick and Pay Hyper Nord Kosher Butchery wants to make Pesach more affordable for you. Uh, So listen to this. Every time you spend 500 rands at the butchery put your slip into the box at the information counter uh, and on Tuesday the 27th of March it could be your name drawn for 1000 rands worth of meat products from the kosher butchery Pick and Pay uh, Hyper Nord wishes you and your family a hug kasha summer there you go uh, you can get both of your uh, matzah and your meat uh, at Pick and Pay sounds, uh, sounds great so yep I'd love to hear your views what do you think of Toy and Neta uh, I think it's a, a fascinating song And uh, one which might very well win the Eurovision Song Contest. So, uh, you know, could be be fascinating and could be interesting. Now, I want to move along to uh, something new on on the Jewish uh, thinking scene at the moment. Uh, A lot of people in Joburg wouldn't be aware of them because it is a Cape Town-based institution. But there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of the Kaplan Center at the moment. Kaplan Center for Jewish Studies, based at UCT. And... They have a relatively new chair, chairman, CEO, director, I don't know, whatever you call it, of the center, Adam Mendelssohn, who's been doing some tremendous work to, to really get the academics out of their ivory towers and having a, a discussion in, uh, in, in, in the general Populace, uh, which I think is a really good move, and they've been doing some excellent stuff, uh, which I think is impacting positively on the Jewish community. Last year, for example, they did a anti-Semitism survey, or, or not really anti-Semitism, but understanding views of Jews by the broader population of South Africa, which gave everyone a, a proper... Indication of you know, where are Jews being seen at uh, in the South African context uh, and uh, you know, they've been looking at researching books and doing seminars and uh, I think it's uh, also engaging with the Jewish students so I think that that's all a very very positive uh, and, and needed aspect of what they do because it's not like America or the UK where we've got a dozen different policy think tanks we only really have one in this country which is them uh, and if they don't engage with the community then, then that is I think a loss now, as part of this outreach uh, and uh, engagement uh, f- program, if you like they 've also launched a new website called dafka dot uh, say it 's calling itself many issues and more voices and it seems to be a sort of academic type uh, engagement trying to get different voices or more voices rather into uh, into the space and uh, they've they 've done a couple of different ones, um, including. One about uh, Jews and community rights in South Africa uh, and another one uh, talking about uh, just talking about the community in general, and, and you should go read them. There have only been three published so far, but it's certainly very interesting. It's the third one that really caught my eye, and it's by Professor Stephen Friedman, uh, and it's talking about the ANC and the future of South Africa Israel relations. Now, I thought it was a bit of a strange choice to pick uh, Professor Stephen Friedman because he is a professor who is very supportive of. Of the BDS, and uh, you know doesn't doesn't really want to allow uh, Israeli academics to engage with South African institutions. And UCT is currently embroiled in a debate about whether uh, it should uh, boycott Israeli uh, in institutions and universities or not. So it seems to be a bit of a strange choice. And I also think it, it talks to the paucity of uh, people who we actually have in the community or even outside the community who can talk. Two issues of international relations when it comes to Israel, because uh, Professor Friedman does get a lot of airtime uh, on this topic, and he does have obviously a very specific uh, viewpoint. Uh, so, so I do think that as a community, we may have to start investing in new, younger people who can take on policy approaches from a variety of different angles, not just sort of the the standard BDS line uh, being dressed up as academia. Now, besides the the, the 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 person uh, of 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 Mr. Freeman Friedman being chosen i also clearly disagree with his view which basically comes down to this he's saying that he doesn't believe that the recent uptick in in BDS uh, activity in South Africa is in fact a threat uh, a to the Jewish community and uh, b to uh, the is uh, is South African Israel uh, relationship itself and and basically he he i he bases it on two assumptions. The first is that he, he doesn't believe that uh, the BDS movement is itself uh, anti-Semitic, uh, and second of all, his argument is that it just hasn't been all that successful um, at, at all in in driving, uh, you know, the uh, driving the the relationship between the two uh, uh, downwards, and um, and that's the, the sort of basic underlying uh, part of his. Uh, thinking. Now, I would say that this is sort of wrong on on two accounts. First of all, there's a large and growing body of academic research that very clearly points. BDS as being an anti-Semitic movement from a variety of perspectives uh, including uh, the idea of double standards where it's only singled out Israel uh, the way that it describes Israel as a unique evil um, every uh, the denial of Jewish rights to sovereignty in Israel whilst pushing it for the Palestinians, uh, the removal of diplomatic and military institutions uh, that protect Jews. So I, I don't want to really want to get into it but certainly from a Jewish community perspective uh, I don't think that there's any doubt that that uh, BDS as an anti-Semitic movement And just because it dresses itself up As a human rights organization I don't think we need to necessarily Take that seriously Because anti-Semites throughout the ages Have always dressed up uh, their anti-Semitism With the discourse of the day Whether it's uh, people who As people who killed Jesus Or as, uh, you know, in, as part of uh, Racial biology Whatever it was, uh, anti-Semites have tended To fit their narrative into whatever Was popular at the time, uh, so where Dr. F- uh, Friedman or Professor Friedman sees uh, people who are simply uh, aberrations that commit anti-Semitic offences from the BDS movement, I think that the community tends to see it as a recurrent and obvious pattern that comes out of a movement that has an anti-Semitic uh, agenda. Now, F- Professor Friedman is correct when he says that this is uh, has not been an effective movement, right? Um, uh, and uh, he 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 is correct that it hasn't really had a serious victory and his point is that uh he believes that the assault on the ANC is incorrect now we may or, may or may not uh, know whether that is uh the truth the ANC has been uh focusing on a lot of its uh, policy Frameworks, including uh, the land question, nationalizing the Reserve Bank. So there's no reason why to think that they won't come after uh, the Israel question. The problem, of course, for the BDS is that it doesn't actually affect Israel and it can't. Even if South Africa did break uh, ties, it would be basically symbolic. And so what tends to happen is because the BDS cannot affect Israel Actually in any way uh, And if South Africa doesn't engage as a country It can't actually affect Israel in any way it, They tend to take it out on the targets That are most closest to Israel Which tends to be the Jewish community And that really what leads to the serious uh, Anti-Semitism So uh, that in brief is why I disagree with uh, Professor Friedman's Article in Dufka.com But uh, I would encourage you to read it yourself uh, And let us know what you think uh, I'd be very happy Happy, uh, to hear a frequency like no other, 101.9 high FM. Now it is obviously Pesach coming up uh, on Friday, so we we are going to you know not have another show before then. So I did want to leave on a Pesach message and. Uh, something you know that people could take away with them, and of course, there's always different rabbis who have different perspectives. But I thought I would bring you something slightly different today. Uh, if you are a big YouTuber, you will know of a man called Jordan Peterson, uh, he is a psychologist from uh, Canada, he's actually a Christian, and he's become very, very famous for uh, fighting the so called culture wars, uh, fighting against people being. Uh, thrown off university campuses and uh, become a big free speech warrior. And he is a very considered and interesting guy to listen to on philosophy. And he also has a big interest in the Old Testament and particularly the characters and stories. And he has a great video. You should go and check it out on YouTube where he talks about the exodus and freedom, which of course is a great theme coming up to to uh, Pesach. And what he argues essentially is that uh, the Part of freedom that uh, is the exodus is actually not the the freedom part, basically you know God intervenes in the world and um, and and allows the the Jews to escape. but when they get to the uh, the desert that 's really when the journey begins, uh, and that 's when they have to sort of start walking around and bashing into things, so to speak, to try and figure out their way, and that they get a lot wrong, uh, but over the period. Of, of the time they sort of straighten themselves out and uh, eventually go on to become uh, the people who uh, settle the land in Israel, uh, etc. And it's, it's not a completely unique idea. You can find it uh, uh, amongst a lot of rabbis, but it's very interesting to hear what it basically is a secular uh, psychology philosophy uh, speaker, someone who deals basically in contemporary issues talking about freedom using the Exodus as a key So if you are interested in it, you can have a look uh, on his website, uh, jordanpeterson.com, psychological significance of biblical stories, uh, and check it out on YouTube as well. It's not a long thing, maybe five to ten minutes, but uh, if you want something different for your Pesach preparation this year, uh, I can recommend uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, and he has a whole series, there's like a uh, uh, 15-part series on on the on all sorts of biblical stories So if uh, that's of interest to you And you follow Jordan Peterson I just thought I would bring that to your attention And also bring to your attention That it is the end of the show for today Thank you so much for joining us Thank you to Mandy for uh, doing the production And to Craig for pushing all the big red buttons And for Vusi for helping us out with the sound today I will see you next week It's a public holiday So it should be exciting uh, But we'll chat to you then